Hello, I'm Carrie. And I'm Emily. And we are the voices of Tarvis. And what is Tarvis, I hear you cry? Well, Tarvis stands for Timely and Relevant Blogging, Including Sandwiches. It does indeed. And what does that mean, Carrie? That is a blog that we set up just about a year ago now about historical places that we've been to, um, places of interest, and basically describing them, giving you a run-through of them, so that you can make up your mind whether to go there or not. Nine times out of ten, we suggest you do. Yeah, and we give ratings on all different things, from the facilities, to the place itself, to the upkeep, and of course, the cafes. Because that's all important. Definitely. But we decided that we didn't just want to write about things, we wanted to talk about them as well. So we set up a podcast that you're listening to, which is all about... People, places, historical events, things of interest that we uh, we like to geek out about. Yep, we wanted to get on another platform because nerding about history is what we do best and we wanted another way of doing it. And sharing it with you lovely people. Now, um, you can listen in, obviously. You can also read our blog and get in touch. How can they do that, em? Well, it's using our handle, which is the same for Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and WordPress. And that is at Tarbis History. And Tarbis is all capitals and history is all lowercase. So come on in, have a listen, drop us a line if you think that there's someone in particular that we should talk about or, God forbid, we get something wrong. Definitely, if we get something wrong, I want to know. So sit back, relax and enjoy Tarbis After Hours. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Tarbis After Hours. You might think we sound slightly different. We are trialling out some new microphones that we've bought. We thought, you know, after it's been a been a year, it'd be best to get maybe a tad professional. Yeah, give it a go. Um, we will send a we'll post a photo later of our setup. Yes, it's quite cool. I really like them, but it does it might pick up on every little sound. So if you hear any pages rattling from our notes and stuff, we or my chair moving, <laughs> we do apologise. But uh, back to today's podcast. Uh, we're going to be looking into the life of one of England's lesser-known monarchs, monarchs <laughs> Queen Anne. Now, I'll, I'll confess, I didn't know that much about her no. before this. I don't think anyone really does. No, she's not really covered that much. It's kind of active unification, that's it. Yeah, but that the active unification and that is it. I mean, that, that is pretty important, to be fair. But <laughs> yeah, compared with the rest of her life... Oh, yeah. Um, I was actually recently lucky enough to go and see the movie The Favourite, uh, which depicts the life and trials of Queen Anne, and um, the, I think the synopsis of the movie goes along these lines. In the early 18th century, England is at war with the French. Nevertheless, duck racing and pineapple eating are thriving. A frail Queen Anne occupies the throne, and her closest friend, Lady Sarah, governs the country in her stead while tending to Anne's Ill, Ill health and mercurial temper. When a new servant, Abigail, arrives, her charm endears her to Sarah. Sarah takes Abigail under her wing, and Abigail sees a chance to return to her aristocratic roots. Now, it's, that's a pretty like broad synopsis, but it sort of covers it. Um, it's a very good film, and I did really enjoy it. It's equal parts funny, touching, moving, some shocking bits. Um, I think it captures court life perfectly, and yes, there is, there is duck racing, and there's um, a lord that walks his duck every day. And, well... Uh, Good on that, Lord. It's interesting, but you you see why uh, Olivia Colman got the Golden Globe. It's very well deserved. Okay. Well, um, when historical events are put onto like another media platform, such as movies, TV shows, or even plays, you know, looking at you, Shakespeare, some of the events will be embellished. They will. Some creative license is kind of allowed. Definitely looking at you, Shakespeare. Um, but her life uh, story reveals intriguing contradictions and actually a lot of sadness. 
Mm. Um, Anne was a dedicated and conscientious stateswoman who, during her reign, she oversaw the lasting uni- union of England and Scotland. Still lasting. It, yeah, for now. Nicola Sturgeon's <laughs> trying her best. But, yeah, at the moment, we're still uh, we're still all together. Um, she was also a mother, and she was in really poor health. She endured 17 pregnancies, but outlived all of her children. That's really sad. Isn't it? Um, she was painfully shy, yet she was able to assert her authority when needed. Um, she was devoted to her kind but dull husband, mm. yet estranged, and she was and entangled in passionate female friendships. We'll obviously we'll get on to those more later. Yeah. But as fascination um, fascination grows with her favourites, as per the movie, um, you talk about Lady Sarah Churchill and Lady Abigail Masham. Now it's time to delve into this remarkable queen and see what we can deduce between fact and fiction. Now Anne Stewart was born into the heart of royal and political life on the sixth of February, sixteen sixty-five. She was born at St James's Palace. And she reigned as Queen of England from 1702 to 1714. Um, Her reign changed Britain forever, but we'll go into that a little bit later. Um, She was the second daughter and the fourth child of King James II. Not the one with the gunpowder plot, the one after. Mm -hmm. However, at the time of her birth, he was James, Duke of York. Um, Her mother was Anne Hyde. And um, through her father, she was the niece of King Charles II. Um, there was some scandal surrounding her parents, as her father, who was the heir presumptive to the English throne because Charles didn't have children, um, married her mother, who was a commoner, after only two months be- or two months, sorry, before the f- birth of their first child. Shotgun, anyone? Yeah, I can hear a few shotguns. Yeah, in um, Queen, there was Queen Anne and there was Mary, and they were the only surviving children out of eight children that were born to James II. And because of it, it was never anticipated that Anne would ever be queen. Yeah. Um, her education, she was basically educated to be more of a domestic lady than a future queen. Um, but because her uncle was king and her father was heir to the throne, she had a very strong loyalty to the Church of England. Um, although her dad was Catholic, she, um, under the instructions of the king, King Charles II, both her and her sister Mary were raised as Protestants. And um, at the age of three, Anne was sent to France to have her eyes treated um, because she suffered from um, excessive watering of the eyes, also known as defluxion. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah, that's... Um, But she actually stayed in France for then more than two years. She learnt the language perfectly, which probably because she was young it helped. But this actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise for when she was queen. Yeah. So, um, and that was where you could say the sadness and bad luck for poor old Anne it's where it all began Um, because while she was in France she was living with her paternal grandmother um, who then died in 1669 Mm -hmm. Um, she then went to live in another part of France with her aunt the Duchess of Orleans okay she suddenly died in 1970 Ah. so she then decided to return to England Mm -hmm. only to suffer the loss of her mother the following year so that's three female role models gone in such a short In a couple time. of years, yeah. yeah. Um, and she was still only six years old. Oh, Yeah. Um, and young Anne had already injured illness, upheaval and tragedy. Well, yeah, she's had to move like three, four times. So. Yeah. And she was, her eyes, getting surgery, I bet eye surgery back in the uh, 1600s. Wasn't yeah. exactly laser eye, was it? 
No, and that that's daunting enough as it is, but let alone they probably held... I don't even want to think about what they did. That'd be no, gross. really don't think about it. Okay, thanks. Um, but then to top it, off, uh, top it all off, um, after her mother's death, her father married um, someone who's much, much younger. Mm-hmm. Um, he married a young Catholic princess, Mary of Medina, in 1671. Okay. So a, less than a year after her mother died, her father remarried. Ouch. And she was only 15. As in the as princess in Mary was only 15. Yeah, she was four years older than his daughter Mary, mm-hmm. and six and a half years older than Anne. So basically, he he was old enough to be her father. Yeah, um, but luckily um, for Anne, she got on with her stepmother. Okay. So it was something out of all of that, like the first six years of her life being quite tragic and quite traumatic. She got on with her stepmother. No evil stepmothers here. And by all accounts, James II was a really loving parent. Despite this, though, um, both Anne and Mary did live separately from their parents in Richmond, London, because this was the usual thing for royal children at the time. Um, They were educated as Protestants under the care of one Edward Villiers, who was known by... by James II as Honest Ned, um, which could be another indication of his affection and his his love for his children. Um, It was around that time that Anne got to know Sarah Jennings, who continued to influence her into her adulthood. This is um, Sarah Churchill later, because um, she married John Churchill, who was already known to Anne. So Anne knew her personally and through John Churchill as well. Um, They... Sarah and John got married about seven years after Sarah became friends with Anne. Um, And then John went on to become the Duke of Marlborough, which is a pretty significant military figure. And um, he was quite an important statesman during Anne's later reign. Um, By all accounts, Anne was quite quiet. She lacked a lot of confidence. um, And she she really needed those passionate, close, loyal connections that she had with her friends. Um, her female friendships particularly, they were the most important to her. As young women, her and her sister Mary actually exchanged, exchanged quite passionate letters with other women. Um, make of that what you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mary addressed Lady Frances Apsley as her husband, whilst Anne begged Larry, Lady Sarah Churchill to always be by her side. So this is... This, it's like another level of friendship. Yeah. Um, but... Anne's own marriage at this point, so we've gone a little bit further on in her life, uh, her own marriage was delayed by politics, mm-hmm. um, fearful of Catholics in the wake of the supposed plot to assassinate the king. Um, a strong party in Parliament attempted to pass laws that would prevent her father from succeeding to the throne. Okay. Um, Charles... So he was Catholic. Yeah. So, and from the Tudors and everything, you know what it's like when the country goes from one religion to another. Mm-hmm. Um, but Charles sought to defuse the crisis by sending James and Maria to Scotland. Okay. Um, Anne visited them quite regularly in um, 1681 and 1682. Um, but as a princess, Anne needed to make a politically suitable marriage. Mm-hmm. A match was actually um, briefly um, suggested between Anne and um, George Ludwig, the uh, elector of Hanover, who was the future King George I. Um, but it, he vis- well, the, the marriage was suggested when he visited in um, 1680, 1681, but it wasn't to be. Um, in, uh, in 1683, she was 18 years old, and she married the 30-year-old Prince George of Denmark. 
Um, the way to draw, it's easy to remember. Yeah, definitely. Um, but sadly, she soon, she soon experienced the first of a string of difficult pregnancies. Um, she gave birth to a stillborn daughter in May in 1684, where she would then go on to have a further 16 pregnancies in the 16 years to 1700s. That's basically one a year that she lost. That would that would be traumatic emotionally and physically. Yeah, well, she didn't lose them all at stillbirth. And well, she no, didn't lose I them mean, all, yeah. Lose, lost all these children. Yeah, she did. Um, but her father, good old King James II, became king on Anne's 20th birthday. That's when um, Charles II died and her father was proclaimed king. That was in 1685, wasn't it? Yes, it was, on the 6th of February, as you just said. Uh, three years later, though, he was deposed in what was known as the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Mm. Uh, this was where um, and Anne and her husband um, supported this, and it was where... Um, her to be brother in law, William of Orange, uh, came over okay. and deposed him. And then William and Mary, Anne's sister, um, ascended to the throne. Um, the era of William and Mary had then begun. Just as an FYI, William of Orange is from the Netherlands, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And. Um, Mary died in 1694, mm -hmm. but William inherited the throne for life. So it wouldn't be another eight years until Anne became Queen of England in 1702. Okay, if we can just slightly go back in time a little bit, um, just to give you a quick rundown of how Sarah Churchill came to be the favourite. Um, Sarah was the daughter of a gentry family, but they were fairly impo impoverished. And she first came to court in 1673 as a maid of honour to Mary of Medina, to Anne's stepmother. Um, she was five years older than Anne, and she was quite a confident character, so she, she probably impressed like the shy young princess. Um, Sarah then met her husband, John Churchill, at court. He was actually a page to Anne's father, James, so that's how Anne knew him previously. Um, despite, there was a lot of opposition from their families, but they actually married in secret in winter of 1677 to such... 78 um this was it was quite weird because there wasn't a lot of love matches going around um so it was unusual for them to have a love match and it was quite a strong marriage they were loyal to anne and john was quite talented as a military commander and it helped them both climb the social hierarchy becoming eventually duke and duchess of marlborough in 1702 um in a letter to Sarah, Anne's actually said to her, Oh, come to me tomorrow as soon as you can, that I may cleave myself to you. Um, it's not known when this was written, but it gives you a slight indication into their friendship. Now, it could just be cleave myself to you as in, I really need a hug right now. Or it could be cleave myself to you in another way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the film does suggest in the other way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Sarah's influence over Anne did increase, and um, Anne's support for her and her husband also increased as well. However, it did cause a rift between Anne and Queen Mary. Um, despite this, it only like their relationship only got stronger between Anne and Sarah. In 1691, Anne suggested that um, her and Sarah should actually call each other Mrs Morley and Mrs Freeman in their letters, so that they'd have a relationship of equals, not princess and lady. Which is it's quite a sweet idea, really. Mm -hmm. um, she said, I had rather live in a cottage with you than reign empress of the world without you. And that was in a letter to her in 1692. They were very close. They were indeed. Um, they had quite a harmonious childhood. And um, Mary, Mary and, and um, Anne. Yeah, Mary and Anne yeah. at this point. They had quite a harmonious childhood. However, they did argue a lot. And then William removed 
John Churchill, um, Earl Marlborough then, from court and from his military posts. And Mary insisted that Anne and Sarah part ways. Oh, but that went down well. Yeah, Anne basically upped and left the court and moved into separate lodgings. And this, they then became estranged. And this unfortunately lasted until Mary's death in 1694. So it caused a rift between the sisters. Wow. She really must have been friends with Sarah. I mean, I love you, you're my best friend, but I don't know if I'd give up an entire, you know, princessdom for you. Well, she didn't give up the, the princessdom. She, well, she, she said she up, would. Well, she said she would, yeah. Yeah. But she I, she gave up mostly her relationship with her sister. Yeah, I, but because she, she said she would. I, I wouldn't. I don't know. It's a lot of it's a lot of responsibility being a, a royal. It's not an easy job. Well, I am a prince. Ah! Yeah, that's her surname, ladies and gentlemen. Feel free to judge. <laughs> don't judge. Um, anyway, so back to Anne. Um... Her marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, despite her husband's reputation for being dull, Anne came to love George very dearly. Aww. And unlike many royal couples, they regularly shared a bed. To be fair, the secret of a happy marriage is separate bedrooms, separate palaces. Yeah. Separate bank accounts. I'm the single one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that says a lot, Carrie, that says a lot. Um, Anne and George liked Hampton Court Palace for its clean country air. Okay. And um, Anne enjoyed hunting in the palace grounds. So it was quite like a nice a nice little marriage. Um, their personal life was marked by tragedy, however, because of losing 18 children. Now, I know I said she was only pregnant 17 times, but one of those times included twins. All oh, right, okay. And she lost the twins, and she lost her babies through a, a mixture of miscarriages, stillbirths, and early deaths. Mm-hmm. Um Two of their daughters, Mary and Anne Sophia, died within days of each other, both being aged under two. Okay. Um, They died of smallpox in 1687. Um, But the politics of their age meant that this was a tragedy, not just inside the palace walls, but outside of them, as the future of the Stuart dynasty came to depend on Anne's ability to produce an heir. Okay. only one of Anne's children survived beyond infancy. Right. And that was William, Duke of Gloucester. Um, he was born at Hampton Court Palace on the 24th of July, 1689. Mm-hmm. Um, his health was initially weak, but as he grew older, he took a keen interest in military affairs and um, he drilled his own reg- regiment of boys from Kensington dressed as little soldiers. Aww. That would be really cute, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, on the 10th of June, 1688, um, Mary of Medina and stepmother actually gave birth to a baby boy. And um, you can actually see the state bed where she gave birth to him now at Kensington Palace. Um, earlier, Anne had alleged that the pregnancy was false. However, the, the healthy baby boy, he displaced Mary and Anne in the royal succession. So James II now had a male heir who could be brought up in the Catholic faith, and was. Um, Anne refused to attend the birth. And rumours um, started to spread that the baby was an imposter and had been smuggled into the bedchamber from a warming pan to re- replace the stillborn baby prince. So it was just basically a way of discrediting him. Um, she never really accepted the baby, who was called James Francis Edward Stuart, also known as the Old Pretender. Um, and he was the father of Bonnie Prince Charlie, who was known for the Jacobite Uprising. Um, but she never accepted that he was legitimate, unfortunately. So... That was her stepbrother. Um, 
Her own health, however, declined in the 1690s because repeated pregnancies, chronic illness took their physical toll. She also had gout as well, which was quite debilitating. Um, she's in her 30s at this point, she could barely walk. However, she did remain forceful in her politics and um, she maintained a separate court that was a rival court to William and Mary's. Um, on the 28th of December, 1694, Queen Mary II died of smallpox at Kensington Palace. So this is her sister Mary died. Um, William III didn't have an heir of his own at this point, so he was for, like, forced his hand, he had to reconcile with Anne, because um, she had the strongest claim to the throne, so he had to reconcile with her and name her his heir. Um, on the 30th of July 1700, the Stuart dynasty lost their only Protestant heir. Um, Anne's son, William, with his little little soldiers, he died of smallpox at Hampton Court Palace at the age of 11. Her, her only surviving child died. And he only reached 11. Yeah. Um, her personal tragedy, it, it changed British history. Um, you had the Act of Settlement in 1701, which secured the Protestant Hanoverians, who were descendants of James I, who was her grandfather, her paternal great-grandfather. Yeah, great-grandfather. Um, he put their, their descendants, the Hanoverians, as heirs to the British throne. And Hanoverians, George Ludwig of Hanover the one that was um, the original contender for a hand in marriage, he's now going to be King George I. Um, she never actually let him visit the country, though, um, because his own presence threatened her power. That would cause a problem for him later on, because he was German, couldn't speak a word of English. No, and he was uh, quite disliked by the English people. Yes. Um, I mean, it does help if you have your monarch speaking your language. Um, on the 8th of March 1702, William III was injured in a riding accident and then he died at Kensington Palace, which made Anne now Queen of, uh, Queen of England. And at that point, the country was engaged in, in quite a bloody war of Europe. And then you had the, the two factions, two political factions of the Whigs and the Tories dominating politics. So she had problems at home in politics, problems abroad with war. Fabulous. Um, but when William died on the 8th of March in 1702, like you said, Anne succeeded to the throne. Um, it was only a matter of weeks, and she named Marlborough as her Captain General and her long-term friend, Sidney Godolphin, as Lord Treasurer. Mm -hmm. So within weeks of him dying, Anne had put her friends back up there. Sarah and John were back up by her side. Um, Queen Anne's first speech at Parliament set the direction of her reign, um, including her commitment to a Protestant succession. Um, she emphasised her own Englishness um, in a critique of her Dutch predecessor, uh, William III. Um, Anne was a surprisingly good public speaker, because I know we've said before that she was actually quite quite shy yeah. um, she was a really good public speaker and an impressive achievement for somebody normally very shy mm -hmm. um, and also you know uh, a lot of her family died yeah. um, and her sister and her children she survived smallpox oh. so the disease that killed three of her children and her sister and actually survived it um, for most of her reign the two men that I just mentioned Marlborough and uh, Godolphin um, they executed her policies at home and abroad um, they formed an alliance with the Netherlands and the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, the Queen declared war on France in May, and Marlborough won significant victories in Blenheim in 1704. Like the palace. Oh, OK. Carrie, <laughs> um, you can finish those. Ramony in 1706, Oudenard in 1708, and Malplaquet in 1709. Yep, um... 
But even in her own lifetime, Anne was believed to be too weak to be an efficient queen or an effective one. Um, they uh, believed that she was ruled over by her favourite, which was Sarah. And um, it's because um, after her accession, it added the impression that because as soon as she was able to, she put them back up there. People who didn't like it and were possibly, you know, different religions, things like that that happened in, in the country, they believed that Anne was pretty much governed by Sarah. But this was wrong. Um, Anne proved to be a hard-working, resolute and uh, popular monarch. She attended the House of Lords regularly. She met daily with her ministers and successfully navigated rival political views to dominate politics as a parliamentary monarch. Okay, that was quite new. Yes, it was. Normally, Parliament and monarchs, they didn't have that much to do with each other, really. No, and they really, after recent events at that point, they didn't see eye to eye. Yeah, hashtag Charles I. Um, but yeah... But then um, Anne supported the Acts of Union in 1701. Um, this um, united the crowns of England and Scotland, and the United Kingdom was born. Woo. Yep, um, it was arguably the most important impact she had during her reign. However, I didn't know it was Anne who united the kingdom. Really? No. That, that was the one thing I remembered about her from school was that she she was responsible for the Act of Unification. Um, I've also recently been to um, to the Culloden battlefield up in up in Inverness in Scotland, um, which tells all about it, and it does tell about the aftermath of the Jacobean uprisings. And part of that aftermath was the um, the theft of the Scottish crown jewels and things like that, and then the act of unification, returning everything. Oh. Yeah, it's it's just one thing I, I know, but I, part of my family's Scottish, so yeah, you yeah. might have more of a reason to know. Yeah. Um. The unfortunately, her her beloved husband, Prince George, he passed away at Kensington Palace from severe asthma on the twenty eighth of October, seventeen o eight, and that completely devastated her. Um, it was she was very very reluctant, and she she was basically forced by Lady Sarah to actually abandon her vigil of his body. She stayed with him. Um, she resented these intrusive actions, but Sarah continued trying to control and undermine her as she mourned, um, which was a mistake, and it actually divided what was once a very strong friendship. Um, as James Bridges, Duke of Shandor, described it, these are his words, His death has flung the Queen into an unspeakable grief. She never left him till he was dead, but continued kissing him the moment the breath went out of his body. Um, Sarah had, up to this point, had been Anne's favourite, her closest friend, also her political advisor and her fixer. Um, she'd wielded a lot of power on the monarch's behalf, and a favourite could accrue money and influence for themselves and their family. But the growing divide between Sarah and Anne during her reign was filled by another woman, who gave the Queen quite a lot of support and friendship she needed, who was actually Sarah's cousin, Abigail Hill. Um, in 1707, Anne was present at um, Abigail's advantageous but secret marriage to one Samuel Masham, who um, was an army officer and groom to the bedchamber of Prince George. And um, Anne actually gave her £2,000 as a dowry. Wow. Uh, her further favour towards Abigail included a luxurious redecoration of her apartments at Kensington Palace, um, which then provoked Sarah's fury, and Sarah was pretty volatile. Mm. Um, Abigail may have begun her royal service as a close servant, dressing and waiting on the Queen, but she ended up wielding quite a lot of political influence. Um, she was a close ally of politician Robert Harley, um, who was a political rival to the Marlboroughs, so he's in the rival party. 
Um, Samuel Masham may even have married Abigail because of the influence that she now had over the Queen. Oh, that's sad. Because Samuel was, um, Masham was part of Harley's party. Ah, oh, right, okay. So far, Carrie, are we, have, has the movie been quite, have they stuck to, without giving any spoilers per se, have they stuck to the, uh, the yeah. fact? So far they have. Um, you've got, Sarah is very volatile in it. Um, you've got um, her husband there and they they are very influential over the Queen. Um, you have got the secret marriage between Masham and Abigail. Um, Harley is played very, very flamboyantly and very well by Nicholas Holt. In oh, really? a fantastic wig. <laughs> Nicholas Holt? He's, it's wow. actually, he's very, very funny. Oh, and wow. His, his banter with Sarah is great. Cool. I think I might have to go see this movie. You definitely do. But um, Anne and Sarah, the downfall, um, they had their final terrible argument. It's that bad that their last argument is recorded on the 6th of April, 1710, at Kensington Palace. Um, Anne refused to answer Sarah's furious words, insisting that anything she had to say could be put in writing. And as we know, never put it in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be fair, when you've uh, been best friends with the Queen for so long that you could literally talk to them, being told, put it in writing, that's basically her saying, you know, shove off. Yeah. I literally couldn't care less anymore. You may hear some noise in the background. I do, I've just dropped something on the floor, so I just need to pick it up. So you may hear my chair creak. I'll talk a bit, I'll say I'll talk a bit louder. Um, Sarah then attempted to blackmail the Queen. Clever. Um, while Anne had destroyed the letters from Sarah writing as Mrs. Freeman, Sarah had kept Anne's letters as Mrs. Morley. Never write it down. And she was now threatening to pu- uh, publish them. Sarah's political allies um, spread rumours that Anne and Abigail's uh, relationship was physical and they talked of dark deeds at night. Oh, um, in doing so, Sarah ensured her own notoriety and influenced history's view of Anne forever. The last devastating words spoken um, repeatedly to Sarah, however, were, and these are quotes, whatever you have to say, you may write it. So she didn't want to see her. She didn't want to hear her voice. She's like, you want to talk to me? Write to me. Yep. Um, on... The, uh, on Friday, 30th of July, 1714, Anne had a series of severe strokes. Her doctors treated her with um, bleeding, blistering, hot irons and garlic on her feet. Um, an appalling treatment that caused the dying queen great pain. Historical doctors. Don't trust them unless they're Greek or Egyptian, because those guys sort of knew what they were doing. Hippocrates? Hippocrates drank we. Yeah, but from your urine, you can tell certain things. Like, you could tell if you were diabetic. But if you I mean, drank wee, it's, it's not very good for you. It's sterile. But it's not good for you. It's for Bear grills. No, it's not. If you drink too much pee, you are, like, poorly. There's so much crap in your pee. That's why your body doesn't keep it. I know, I'm not saying they were spot on all the time, but some <laughs> things they did weren't bad. Um... On Saturday, um, on, so this is on the Friday, the 30th, she had other treatment. On the Saturday, um, the Privy Council invited George Ludwig of Hanover to come to England. So this is quite a big... George the first. Yeah, this was quite a, an indication of the Queen's health at this point. Mm. And it was, it, this was because it was soon um, possible, it was obvious that the Queen's end was near. Anne died at 7.45am on Sunday, the 1st of August, 1714, aged only 49, at Kensington Palace. 
Um, the last of the Stuarts, her body lay at the palace for three weeks, and her funeral was on the 24th of August, 1714, and was held at Westminster Abbey, where she is buried. Have you ever been to Westminster Abbey? <sighs> no. Neither have I. I think I think we should go to pay We've homage to somebody. We've not been to West... Yeah. I can't believe we haven't been... To be fair, I haven't even been to Leicester Cathedral, and I'm a Richard III nerd, so I, I don't know... I liked that, I liked that rhyme. The, uh, Richard III nerd. Yeah. I'm a third nerd. There we go. Oh, you ruined it. Thanks. Um, Queen Anne, when she died, she actually left no clear will. Um, it's possible that her fear of death meant she couldn't really bring herself to sign one, because it's, it's like the ultimate show of your mortality. Um, but she kind of left her country pretty much changed forever. Um, I mean, for one thing, we were in the hands of the, uh, the German hunk. And, uh, yeah, apparently he was quite dashing. Couldn't speak a word of English. Good looking. Um, she created the United Kingdom as we know it today, and she paved the way for the Hanoverians, the dynasty of the Georgians, who ruled Britain until Queen Victoria, and wore really ridiculous hairdos. Um, Queen Anne worked with a new kind of monarchy that we recognise today, so you'd no longer have monarchs ruling by the divine right of kings, a belief that led her grandfather Charles I to the chop. Um, instead, monarchs ruled in conjunction with Parliament, more... I mean, they had more power then than they do now. Now the monarchy is essentially a figurehead. Um, but that was sort of the style for it. Um, you can also see her legacy in the decorations of the Queen's apartment, um, in the transformation of the Chapel Royal, and the East Front Gardens at Hampton Court Palace. You also get a variety of furniture called Queen Anne. I, I know that from Bargain Hunt. Um, <laughs> at Kensington Palace... Yeah, I've just admitted... I, I, I'm not even <laughs> saying... not saying a word, Carrie. Um, at Kensington Palace, she built the Orangery, which is um, a greenhouse where she held balls. And uh, her reign created modern Britain, essentially. Um, it's, it's known as like, the, uh, the start of the modern era, the early modern era, for that reason. Um, today, you can actually go to Kensington Palace and Hampton Court Palace, and you can walk in her footsteps in the palace where this great queen lived, loved, and ruled, which we will do, and we will blog about. We will, because we do have a blog, as well as this we podcast. So that's Queen Anne. Um, there's actually a lot more to her than I knew. Yeah, same here. And her life is a lot more tragic than I realised as well. It's really quite tragic. Like, yeah. people say, like, it, it must be devastating if you ever have to outlive one of your children. She outlived, outlived 18. Yeah. 18, 17 pregnancies, and the oldest gets to 11. I can't, you can't even fathom that sort of... You, you can't imagine the grief. And the devastation. Yeah. All, and then she loses all of her family as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, but apart, she apart from her stepbrother. She survived the smallpox, but she would never believe... Not stepbrother, half-brother. She never believed it was her, it was her half-brother. She never... No, she, she never believed that. No, she always thought it was the warm pan baby. <laughs> so, are we ready for the ridiculous death? Is it ridiculous death time already? It is indeed. Um, I thought we would go for something fairly fitting in keeping with the times. Okay. Admittedly, this is a little bit before Queen Anne. Okay. This is set in Charles II, right at the very start of Charles II's reign. But it's her uncle, so yeah. it, it all intertwines. This is the story of Thomas Urquhart. Um, he was actually born to a, a landholding family in Cromarty in northern Scotland. Um, he was quite well read. He was what's known as a polymath, which um, Da Vinci was a polymath. Basically, he's good at a lot of things. He's a know-it-all, essentially. 
um, and he translated a lot of good works in French. Um, he was very into his classical reading, classical learning, basically a, a true Renaissance man after the Renaissance period, more or less. Okay. Um, he was also a royalist. Oh, good eye. And um, he helped with the royalist uprising in Inverness in 1848, in 1648, sorry. Um, he was, at that point, he'd inherited from his father who died in 1642 um, and he'd got quite a large estate so he was able to, to help with that um, and he was officially declared a traitor by parliament but he didn't really suffer any of the consequences on that um, he marched with Charles II and fought at the Battle of Worcester Yay! and uh, unfortunately the royalist forces were pretty badly defeated at that one and he was taken, a pr- he was taken prisoner um, every, all of his manuscripts from all the translations and work he was doing he lost them. They were forfeited as part of his uh, things. Oh, wow. so all of his life's work up to that point, he'd be pretty annoyed. Um, he was held first at the Tower of London and later at Windsor, um, but they gave him quite a lot of a lot of freedom. Yeah. Um, and then in 1652, he was pro- paroled by Cromwell and returned to, Co- to Cromarty. So Cromwell oh. let him go on parole. Um, he... is, that, is that Cromwell doing something not terrible? Yeah. Basically. Wow. Um, he then continued his work, living up in Cromarty. The legend goes, however, that he died no later than 1660. Okay. Because when he was told that uh, Charles II had been restored to the throne, he went into such a fit of laughter, he choked and died. through all of that he'd lost everything started again lost it all started again lost it all started again finally reconciled himself to the fact that you know what parliament are probably going to win this and I might as well just get on with my study and just stay you know keep my head down you know don't don't uh, don't look out of the, the parapet so to speak Charles II comes back in dies laughing wow wow <laughs> just just wow yeah so that's our ridiculous death this week Thomas Urquhart Lord of Cromarty, or Laird of Cromarty. You know what? He he can have it. Yeah, that was. <laughs> you finally get the one thing that you've literally been imprisoned for. Yeah, that he happened years, years and years of extensive research and work for. And then it happens, and he dies laughing. Yep. Bless his heart. Um, if you are interested in any of his works, one of the last things he uh, ever published was the. Logo Pandectesian, which was a plan for universal language. Wow. Yeah. So he was really a brain box with a weird sense of humour. <laughs> a fatal sense of humour. Hey. <laughs> very, very true. Well, that's it for Tarbus After Hours this evening. As always, like, share, comment away. We would greatly appreciate it. And we also have other forms of social media as well. We do indeed. Um, you can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all with the tang- with the what was the tagline? Tagline. That's the one. Tarbus History. Mm-hmm. You can find us on there, and our blog is on WordPress. It is. And can we just take this opportunity to thank everybody? Um, at the weekend, we undertook a charity event for Macmillan, 24 Hours of Gaming. Now, I can we 100% 24 hours gamed solid. From 3.30pm on Saturday the 12th till 3.30pm on Sunday the 13th. Yes. Without stopping, except for the occasional pee break and me running up to grab some dominoes from the door. 
Yes, um, we did it and we raised a lot of money for Macmillan Cancer Research, um, Cancer Support, sorry, mm -hmm. and um, we had a lot of of uh, support from social media yeah. we were on twitch and we had quite a few people just keeping us awake so we just want to take this opportunity to thank you all whether you donated shared liked came on twitch whatever you did thank you if you have if you're interested in donating you haven't yet we do have the link on our instagram and on our facebook page by all means just drop us a line even if you just want to support us every penny helps because it is for a cancer charity every penny does help but even if you just want to drop a, a word of support then thank you we appreciate it brilliant thank you very much and this is tarbis over and out good night good night